Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, April 30th, 2014, for those who are on the recording. And um, uh, end of the month of April. May starts uh, excitingly for me next week. We have Dr. Sarah Freebert uh, from Akron Children's Hospital, a place I know well, uh, who is a leading light really in pediatric palliative care and is going to come and talk on the state of the art and science in pediatric palliative care, arrive early and stay late. Some of you may have noticed that Hillary Spencer sent a, um, a, a survey monkey, a survey out to get an assessment of our sort of state of knowledge prior to Dr. Freebert's grand round. So if you haven't filled that out yet, and I don't see Hillary to see how many responses she's gotten, but it'll be help inform uh, Sarah's talk next, um, next uh, Wednesday morning. Subsequently, we have Dr. Ellen Wald, a famous name in pediatric infectious disease on May 14th, and Drs. Hoffley and Shepard uh, to round out the month. So. A good month, uh, a good month starting for many of us in Vancouver, where uh, we want to wish people good luck and safe travels as m presenting, many folks are presenting at the Pediatric Academic Society's meetings, including much of our house staff, as we recognized on Monday afternoon at our celebration of education. So um, this is good, exciting times. These purple sleeps, remember, try and fill these out to give feedback to Dr. Ladone. Um, I've been reminded that basically at the end of the session, if you leave it at the end of your row or just on the table on the way out, then um, Dr. Tyler can collect those and collate them and get feedback. So Janelle Ladone is our speaker this morning. We're continuing <clears throat> our exciting graduating residence series. Uh, Janelle is uh, finishing off this spring. Uh, a native of Glastonbury, Connecticut. She didn't travel very far down the road to uh, receive her Bachelor of Science in Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology at Yale University, magna cum laude. Uh, then went to Mount Sinai School of Medicine, where she uh, continued to uh, receive honors as an Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Society, the Gold Humanism Honor Society, and Phi Beta Kappa. Um, she has quietly done uh, this, and probably for many of us who know her, has quietly uh, been extremely talented and capable in our residency as well. So reading these honors isn't a huge surprise to us. We're excited that Janelle will be continuing on with us for a year as a pediatric hospitalist as well. And so this is not a farewell, but this is an opportunity for Janelle to impart some wisdom. Thanks, Janelle. Good morning. Can you hear me? All right. So to, this morning, we'll be talking about clinical practice guidelines. I chose this topic because in residency, I've come to rely on certain guidelines in my day-to-day -day care of patients. There's so much literature out there that I just haven't had time to sort through. So having a guideline that's an authoritative, evidence-based recommendation for how to care for patients in certain clinical situations, I found to be extremely helpful. Every time a patient is admitted to the inpatient unit with possible pneumonia, I automatically pull up the Infectious Disease Society of America guideline for pneumonia and look at how they recommend the patient should be worked up and treated. A patient in clinic has otitis media. Do they need to be treated? I pull up the AAP guideline. But my mentors during residency have taught me to think critically about all the studies I read. And I realized that I was simply taking guidelines at face value. I was holding them on a pedestal, if you will. So for my grand rounds, I decided to take a closer look at clinical practice guidelines. 
So these are the objectives for my talk. First, I'm going to describe the background and the rationale for the increase in the number of clinical practice guidelines and talk about their potential benefits. I'll explore the challenges and limitations of guidelines and then discuss the Institute of Medicine standards to improve the quality of guideline development. Finally, my hope is that after this talk, you'll be able to scrutinize guidelines, assessing for the quality of the evidence, the transparency, conflicts of interest, in order to have a more complete, uh, completely informed understanding of the guideline. So to do this, we're going to look at the background and history, the benefits and limitations of guidelines, and we will spend a significant amount of time on the limitations, but I want to note that although I'm focusing on the limitations, uh, I'm not at all against guidelines. I just think it's important to know their limitations in order to be a well-informed user. And then uh, I'll discuss some guideline development standards and how our guidelines measure up. So according to the Institute of Medicine in 2011, the definition of a clinical practice guideline is statements that include recommendations intended to optimize patient care that are informed by a systematic review of evidence and an assessment of the benefits and harms of alternative care options. So guidelines are slightly different from something like a consensus statement in that not only do they review and synthesize the research data, they actually go a step further and recommend a course of action. So let's talk about the history of guidelines. Even though the definition we just talked about was from 2011, guidelines are not a new invention. They've been around for quite some time. And the field of pediatrics actually plays a role here. Uh, does anyone know what was one of the first practice guidelines produced in the US? Feeding a premature babies and going to these hospitals. It's not the one I found. <laughs> <laughs> Many sources actually cite the AAP Red Book of Infectious Disease, which was first published in 1938 as one of the first US uh, clinical practice guidelines. But 1938, that predates the evidence-based medicine movement. So the first randomized controlled trial, which was a study of streptomycin uh, treatment in pulmonary tuberculosis, wasn't published until 10 years later in 1948. Therefore, most of the early guidelines were developed by expert panels and based on expert opinion, rarely uh, by a systematic interpretation of scientific evidence. Evidence-based medicine that picked up steam in the 1970s, and soon thousands of randomized <coughs> controlled trials were being produced each year. From the mid-1970s to 1980s, there were about 5,000 randomized controlled trials indexed in Medline each year. And this dramatically increased even further from the mid-1990s to early 2000s, there were 25,000 randomized controlled trials each year. This was really making it impossible for providers to keep up with the growing literature base. Another problem was that much of this growing body of literature was suspect and of questionable quality. So one author um, described it as drowning in doubtful data. It's been estimated that an internist would have to read 33 articles per day, 365 days per year, in order to even have a chance at staying up to date. So a solution for that problem was guidelines. Uh, they would take a lot of that data, synthesize it down into one document, uh, and come out with recommendations for how to use it in clinical practice. So the explosion of guidelines followed the pattern of the expansion of evidence-based medicine. Prior to the mid-1970s, only about one to two guidelines were produced each year. Uh, but by 1989, there were more than 35 medical societies that had developed at least one guideline. The US government was also involved. 
In the 1980s, different federal agencies, for example, the United States Preventive Services Task Force, uh, were creating guidelines. And in 1989, the agency, which is now called the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, was established. Uh, it was given the task of producing guidelines on a wide spectrum of clinical areas in order to reduce variability of the care patients were receiving. Now, this agency is still around, but it no longer produces guidelines. But what it does do is disseminate guidelines through the National Guideline Clearinghouse, which is a website that ensures free access of guidelines for everyone. So this is what the website looks like. And just for fun, a few weeks ago, I searched under the uh, clinical subspecialty of pediatrics, and I came up with 768 results. <laughs> and now these aren't even all guidelines, all the guidelines out there related to pediatrics that were ever produced, because in order to stay on this website, the guideline has to be reviewed or revised every five years. So that 768 is only the current guidelines. And in total, not just for pediatrics, there are over 2,500 guidelines on the website. So clearly, there has been this explosion of guidelines. And why have they been so popular? Well, there are a lot of benefits to them. And that's what we're going to discuss now. So first off, as we already talked about, they're convenient. Um, they're a quick reference without sorting through that tons and tons of primary literature. But that's not the main goal. The main goal is to improve the quality of care. Uh, that patients receive. They do this by making explicit evidence-based recommendations for clinicians who are uncertain how to proceed in specific clinical situations. Uh, they promote interventions of proven benefit and discourage the ineffective ones, hopefully overturning outdated practices so that the end result is improved health outcomes. They can also improve consistency of care we all know that patients with identical uh, illnesses uh, get different treatment, whether they're treated at one part of the country, at a different hospital, or even with a different provider within the same group. And then hopefully by encouraging this consistent care and minimizing the ineffective interventions, they promote cost-effective <coughs> practices. Some more benefits are they inform and empower patients. So some guidelines are accompanied by consumer versions. And guidelines are very frequently picked up in the mass media. They support quality improvement activities. So one of the first steps when designing quality assessment tools to reach an agreement on how patients should be treated. And this is often done by developing a guideline. They can influence public policy and aid policymakers in the allocation of healthcare resources. So guidelines call attention to the under-recognized health problems and services that were not previously offered to patients, they can be made available as a response to newly released guidelines. Bright Features, that's uh, you know, basically a guideline for pediatric preventive care, and all the major recommendations are covered by insurance. Finally, they highlight gaps in the evidence. They focus attention on key research questions and promote future research in that area. Unfortunately, with all the good news and benefits of guidelines, there's also bad news. So we're going to switch to discuss the potential limitations or harms of guidelines. Here's an overview of some of the limitations that we'll touch on. So the quality of recommendations is limited by the quality of the evidence, which is often very poor. We'll talk about the lack of transparency of guideline development process and specifically about conflicts of interest. Conflicting guidelines pose problems and the concern that guidelines promote cookbook medicine. And we'll touch on the legal consequences as well. 
And then what we won't actually have time to touch on today, but is important to realize, is that a major limitation of guidelines is that they may do little to actually change behavior. They need to be successful, successfully implemented in order to have any effect. Otherwise, it's just a piece of paper. <clears throat> All right, so quality of evidence. Guidelines can only be as good as the supporting evidence. And when that evidence is lacking, then the guidelines can be incomplete or even wrong. Um, it takes time to produce a guideline, and evidence is out of date sometimes before the guideline even goes to print. In 2013, there was a study in pediatrics that I think is pretty interesting, uh, and it's actually going to come up again later in this talk as well. It was a cross-sectional review of 28 clinical practice guidelines that were listed on the AAP website at that time. And these guidelines were either developed by the AAP or they were produced by a different organization and endorsed by the AAP. And one of the goals of this study was to determine the level of evidence underlying, uh, underlying each guideline recommendation. So here's what they found. Uh, in those 28 guidelines, there were 394 recommendations. The authors looked at the evidence supporting each recommendation and divided it up into three categories. Uh, they were experimental studies, which were randomized controlled trials or controlled clinical trials without randomization. They were observational studies, which is the cohort cohort, case control, cross-sectional studies, or case series, and then um, expert opinion or no reference. <clears throat> the experimental studies, which are considered the highest quality of evidence, were the least frequent. As you can see, only 23% or less than a quarter of recommendations were supported by these high-quality studies, and that doesn't seem very good. But the authors in the study do note that pediatrics is doing slightly better than uh, their adult counterparts. Um, in adult infectious disease, only 14% of recommendations were based on experimental studies, and adult cardi cardiology was 12%. But the adult guidelines also had many, many more recommendations. So a big takeaway uh, point from this slide is actually the number of guidelines that were simply based on expert opinion or no reference at all. And that was 31%, or just under one-third of recommendations were based on expert opinion. <laughs> so what do we make of this high proportion of recommendations based on expert opinion? Well, people actually disagree on this subject. On the one hand, some people think that guidelines should not be made if a, uh, should not make a recommendation if there's no solid evidence behind it. Just simply say, due to the lack of evidence, no recommendations could be made at this time. So this will avoid having guidelines potentially steer clinicians in the wrong direction. Many people, they see a recommendation, they take it at face value and adopt it. It becomes the standard of care, and what we do know is that it takes a higher level of evidence to then change that standard, even if the standard was based on nothing but opinion in the first place. On the other hand, some people think that recommendations based on expert opinion are incredibly important and necessary. It's those situations when evidence is scant or it's conflicting, that expert guidance and opinion is most often sought. So this is the view expressed in a 2004 AAP policy statement, but they give the caveat that the quality of evidence and really the thought process behind that opinion-based recommendation needs to be readily apparent to the reader. So the AAP policy statement that we're just talking about, it's called Classifying Recommendations for Clinical uh, clinical practice guidelines. And that was published with the goal of making a system for defining recommendation strength. Uh, it's a three-step sequential process, and the first step is assessing the quality of evidence. 
And this isn't just, was it an experimental study, a randomized controlled trial, or an observational study? It also matters uh, that the study's design was executed well, and it looks at the overall body of evidence as a whole. You know, the number of studies, the consistency between individual studies, the magnitude of the effects. Um, and then you use this evidence quality, quality and you couple that with the balance of benefits versus harms to come up with a recommendation strength. It's from this policy statement that comes figure one um, from every AAP guideline published in the past 10 years. It's a schema to show how they come up with recommendation strength based on evidence quality. So that's graded with letters on the left, and then the balance of benefits versus harms, which is on the top. So this is the AAP schema, but every organization has, has their own way of doing this. And when you read through a guideline, it's definitely worth taking a minute to orient yourself to that specific guideline's way of classifying evidence and recommendation strength. Take this example. So here is the Infectious Disease Society of America uh, pneumonia gu uh, guideline. I just randomly took three recommendations that were in a row. Here, they make a strong recommendation based on high quality evidence. That makes sense. Here, they make a weak recommendation based on low quality evidence. I think I'm starting to get it. Uh, but here, what is the reader supposed to do with a strong recommendation based on low quality evidence? <laughs> now, the AAP policy statement, uh, they do address situations in which there's either um, a clear benefit or harm, but it'd be unethical to perform the clinical trial to prove that point, so there's no evidence to back it up. And the example that they give is prescribing anthrax prophylaxis for people who have been exposed. But I think situations like what's circled here come up much more frequently than the extreme cases of anthrax prophylaxis. <laughs> so we're gonna move on to transparency. For a guideline to be transparent, it has to provide the reader with information that allows them to understand how the recommendations were derived and also who developed them. In a transparent guideline, um, you should know who's behind the guideline and how are they funded? How are the people on the guideline committee, committee chosen? Uh, what were their qualifications or their conflicts of interest? What was the process of evidence review? And uh, what was the debate surrounding a recommendation that occurs behind closed doors? Knowing this allows users to judge the credibility of the recommendations for themselves. And due to concern about the lack of transparency, the AAP put out another policy statement in 2008, which was called Toward, Toward Transparent Clinical uh, Policies. And it was really put out to highlight the importance of transparency in guidelines. So when you're reading guidelines, this information isn't always easy to find. Uh, if it is there, it's often in the introduction or the methods section. So I encourage you to actually read those sections and not just skip ahead to the recommendations. Hand in hand with transparency is conflict of interest. One important study looking at conflict of interest comes from JAMA in 2002. And although it's older and it's in adults, uh, I really think it highlights some key points. So this was a cross-sectional survey of 192 authors of 42 uh, guidelines that were endorsed by either North American or European societies. And the purpose was to characterize the relationship between the guideline authors and drug manufacturers. 
uh, and also to investigate the disclosure of those relationships. And here's what they found. So 87% of authors uh, had some form of relationship with the pharmaceutical industry. And the nature of this relationship varied uh, from receiving travel funding or research support to actually being employed by a drug company as a consultant or having equity in the company. 59% of those authors had relationships with companies whose specific drugs were considered in the guideline they developed. And only 7% of those authors believed that their own relationships with drug companies influenced the guideline recommendations. But interestingly, close to 20% believed that their co-authors' recommendations influenced <laughs> relationships. So <laughs> there are plenty of studies out there um, that show how people are subconsciously swayed by these industry, re industry relationships. And these authors, they're not bad people. I'm sure when making the guideline, they tried to objectively interpret the data. But these subconscious influences can be really powerful. And again, this is an older adult study. Uh, and since this study, many guidelines, de guideline developers, they've put in ways to certainly disclose these conflicts of interest, and in some cases, address them. But it is studies like these which really undermine the general trust in guidelines from both medical providers and the general public. And conflicts of interest, they're not just related to the pharmaceutical industry. Financial conflicts of interest can often uh, also include uh, obtaining government and grant funding for research. And financial conflicts of interest are often the most obvious and easy to study, uh, especially now that they're being disclosed more frequently. But perhaps kind of the more interesting and important conflicts are intellectual. So these type of conflicts are more subtle, yet likely more pervasive. They arise when researchers are too attached to their ideas or embedded in their specific area of expertise to really objectively look at the research question with an open mind. So people who have published on the topic, they might not be the best people to be on that guideline committee. Uh, these people could really push to have their own research included in the studies cited by the guideline for their own academic promotion. Now, it might not be possible or even desirable to exclude these people from committees because they are the experts. However, people should definitely be aware of these potential biases. And you can look for conflicts of interest uh, when reading guidelines. They're often listed next to the author's names at the end of the paper. And if you don't, uh, don't see them and can't find these disclosures, then there's a good chance that there is a conflict of interest. <laughs> All right. So related to conflicts of interest are the problem of conflicting guidelines. So when one guideline from one organization says to do a certain thing, but a different guideline from a different organization says to do something else, it can be very confusing for practitioners and also very frustrating. Um, informally, talking to people about uh, my grand rounds topic, this was the most, one of the most common complaints. So to find out why there are conflicting guidelines, we need to see where those guidelines come from. There are many different agencies out there that are producing guidelines, so it's not surprising that there's some variation. 
their government agencies like the United States Preventive Services Task Force or the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, there are clinical specialty societies like the AAP. But um, societies are not just physicians. There are groups of uh, physical therapists and occupational therapists or nurses that are also producing guidelines. Uh, there are uh, disease or population-specific organi organizations making guidelines and international organizations like the WHO. And then there are other private or commercial companies. Um, so these commercial companies will develop guidelines so that they can sell them to you and sell them the software to implement them and monitor adherence to them. So you have these different organizations making guidelines, and each different organization has a different agenda for why they're making the guidelines. So for example, some uh, specialties that are engaged in turf wars, they might publish a guideline in order to gain ownership of a specific disease or procedure. And how do the guidelines committees reach these different conclusions? Well, different guidelines can base their recommendations uh, on different selection of studies. You can always find studies out there to support to support your point of view. Or even when guidelines look at the same studies, they can interpret them differently. So let's take something very simple, like strep pharyngitis. Uh, there's one paper that looked at 10 international guidelines from North America and Europe. And while there was some agreement on some points, there was also a lot of major differences. So in regards to the rapid strep test, five recommended using it. Five said, don't use it because of the moderate sensitivity and the high pre uh, prevalence of strep carriers. For throat cultures, it was recommended in four. And in six studies, they said, don't use it because the uh, results arrived too late to really have a clinical impact. And then finally, in treatment, four said no to antibiotics because it's a self-limited disease. And six said yes to antibiotics to prevent acute rheumatic fever. And when looking at the sources they cited, there wasn't a lot of overlap. So strep. That's a fairly simple clinical encounter, and much more complex issues can raise even greater confuse, confusion. So there's been lots of frustra frustration surrounding um, the workup and the management of UTIs after the AAP guidelines came out and conflicted with some American Neurologic Association positions on issues such as VCUGs. And in fact, uh, one of the grand rounds that Dr. Loud mentioned, which is coming up in two weeks, is actually devoted to this very topic. So it's pretty hot right now. And when looking at conflicting guidelines, one trend that emerges is guidelines produced by specialists tend to place a higher priority on newer tests and treatments. They are more aggressive recommendations. And this is likely because it's the specialists that see the worst complications of the disease. That's why it's important to have many different viewpoints represented on guideline committees. Recommendations by multidisciplinary groups are generally more conservative. The next issue is that of cookbook medicine, which, uh, in which it's felt guidelines are either too rigid or inflexible, and they don't allow room for clinical judgment. In an older survey of over 1,000 pediatricians about their attitudes and beliefs about guidelines, cookbook medicine was cited as the biggest problem with guidelines. And cookbook medicine was also the most commonly given reason for not using a guideline. So algorithms found in guidelines are thought to reduce patient care into a sequence of simple yes, no decisions that do injustice to the complexity of medicine. And when the guidelines say, if in this situation, then the right course of action is this, it can decrease shared decision making and ignore patient preferences. 
Guideline developers can often be caught in a tough spot, though, because they don't want their recommendations to sound too strict, but they also don't want them too vague and difficult to act on. Furthermore, frequently uh, the guidelines cannot be applied to the specific patient that's sitting uh, in front of you in your office. In medicine, studies often exclude patients with comorbidities or the socially and economically disadvantaged. So recommendations that are based on those studies might not be generalizable to the whole population. Again, we're li limited by the evidence here. So um, it can make it difficult to develop guidelines that are relevant to large populations. And also, guideline developers have to make subjective value judgments. So when weighing the benefits versus risks, the developers have to subjectively decide where to draw that line based on their own values. But if the values of the developers don't align with the values of the patients, then there's a problem. And we all have different thresholds for how much risk is too much. In that study that I mentioned of pediatricians' attitudes about guidelines, after concern for cookbook medicine, uh, use in malpractice cases was actually the second most commonly reported problem with guidelines. So let's look into this a little further. So normally a document like a guideline would be considered hearsay and not allowed because the authors aren't available to testify. However, they are allowed to be used as a learned treatise and bypass the hearsay rule in order to lend credence to an expert witness. And there are two ways in which guidelines can be used in malpractice claims. It's been dubbed a two-way street. Uh, it can be used uh, as an exculpatory uh, method, uh, used by an accused physician as a defense or as a shield, or for uh, inculpatory purposes, where it's used by patients alleging a breach in the standard of care, so as a sword. There's limited data on how courts and lawyers use guidelines. Um, perhaps some of the fear of guidelines uh, uh, for use in malpractice cases stems from this 1995 study. Um, that showed guidelines weren't used frequently, but when they were, they were more often used by plaintiffs as swords. An update of this study in 2010 showed that more recent use is a little more balanced with a closer 50-50 split <coughs> for swords versus shields. And also, just because a guideline is used as a sword by a plaintiff, it doesn't automatically mean they'll win the case. This is illustrated by an early example, um, but it's, only, it's not the only example. So this case, Lowry versus Henry Mayo Newhall Memorial Hospital, is from 1986. In this case, a patient was in a car accident and was brought into the ED, where he suffered a cardiac arrest and died. During the resuscitation, the physician used atropine rather than epinephrine. So the family sued and claimed that the doctor had deviated from the established guidelines of the American Heart Association uh, for ACLS. The doctor argued that the guidelines were not mandatory and could be overridden by the requirements of, uh, on an individual case-by-case -case basis. Uh, and the doctor won the case. So the bottom line is that guidelines are not the be-all, end-all in court. They can inform a decision rather than determine the legal standard of care. So despite physician worry about malpractice uh, cases and guideline use, I don't really believe it's a major downside to guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> so
So sadly, I don't have time to get into it today, but there are some really interesting studies on the use of uh, clinical practice guidelines in order to decrease defensive medicine practices, which unfortunately have not been very successful. So what is the overall quality of clinical practice guidelines? Uh, we've gone over many of the potential limitations, so let's shift and see how those uh, guidelines measure up to some of these li limitations. To look at this, we're going to return to a study that we already looked at. This is that 2013 study in pediatrics. Um, that was the cross-sectional uh, study of 28 AAP-produced or endorsed guidelines. We had looked at it before to assess the quality of evidence and what percentage of recommendations were based on expert opinion. So, the separate goal of the study was to assess the overall quality of the development and the reporting of guidelines using this instrument called the AGREE-2 instrument. It stands for Appraisal of Guidelines for Research and Evaluation. about the agree to instrument. Um, and so this instrument, it's a widely accepted tool. It's been validated for use in retrospectively evaluating guidelines. So the agree to evaluates seven different domains that are listed here. So scope and purpose, so what's the uh, overall aim of the guideline, what's the target population, stakeholder involvement, the extent to which uh, a wide range of different perspectives were considered rigor of development, clarity of presentations, applicability, and editorial independence, which is basically addressing the biases and the conflicts of interest, and then overall quality. And each domain has a total possible point value. <coughs> so here's a table listing the different domains in the leftmost column, and then the next column is the average score that the guidelines received uh, on each domain expressed as a percentage. <laughs> so if you look at the bottom, overall, when you look at the average total score on all the domains, the guidelines only scored an average of 50%. Now the agree, it doesn't have cutoffs for what makes a good guideline versus what makes a bad guideline, but 50% doesn't seem that great. And if you break it down into the different domains, the guidelines scored highest on scope and purpose and also clarity of presentation. But the domain in which they scored lowest was editorial independence, which is that conflict of interest category. They scored a mean score of 17%. So a lot of guidelines weren't disclosing or addressing their conflicts of interest. Interestingly, the study also compared AAP-produced guidelines, which is labeled as the internal guidelines, um, versus the AAP-endorsed guidelines or external guidelines. And they found that AAP guidelines did better on overall total score, but when in, broken down into the domains, uh, it was only scope and purpose uh, for which they were significantly better. So here's some of that data expressed graphically. This is a graph showing the total scores over time. On the y-axis, uh, we have the agree total score, and on the x-axis, we have the year of publication. 
each dot represents a guideline and they're color coded based on whether they are an AAP produced versus an AAP endorsed guideline. Those two dotted lines uh, down the middle, they show the dates of when those two AAP policy statements, which we previously discussed, uh, came out. So the yellow line is the 2004 policy statement about rating the quality of evidence and the strength of the recommendation. And then the green line is that 2008 policy statement about transparency. So as you can see, there really doesn't seem to be any significant increase in a Breeze score over time or in relation to those policy statements. So if guidelines aren't measuring up, then what's uh, being done to try and improve these guidelines? Well, due to the widespread attention that uh, guidelines, uh, the problem with guidelines received, uh, in 2008, as part of the Medicare Improvements for Patients and Providers Act, uh, Congress asked the Institute of Medicine to establish standards for guideline development. They wanted to make the process more objective and more scientifically valid. So after three years and a lot of research, in 2011, the Institute of Medicine, they published the report you see here, which is entitled Clinical Practice Guidelines We Can Trust. This report details eight standards to improve the guideline development process. It's sort of like the AGREE system that we just discussed, but it has higher and more extensive standards. And it's meant to be a prospective tool for the guideline development process rather than a retrospective assessment tool. So the whole report is 290 pages long, but it distills down into eight standards, which are listed here. Uh, I'm only going to mention them briefly because we've already touched on a lot of them earlier in the talk. So the standards include details for establishing transparency, the process by which guidelines are both developed and funded need to be explicitly stated. There's strict management of conflict of interests. So members of guideline committees have to divest themselves of all financial conflict, and they must disclose all financial and intellectual conflicts of interest prior to, be, uh, prior to being, being selected for the committee. And so members with conflicts of interest can only represent a minority of the group, and they cannot be the chair or the co-chair. The guideline development group must be multidisciplinary, and there must be some public involvement as well with a patient or a patient advocate involved. And then full systematic reviews of the complete body of evidence must be done. And both the quality of the evidence and the strength of the recommendation must be rated. And the role that expert opinion plays um, has to be explicitly stated. And any, any differences in the, that opinion also has to be disclosed. The recommendations should be stated in a way that's clear and actionable uh, so that they can be more easily adopted and also integrated into electronic medical systems. And guidelines need to be reviewed by a full spectrum of stakeholders, and this includes patients and the public. And they need to be updated regularly. So do guidelines uh, meet these standards? How do they hold up? A 2012 study in the Archives of Internal Medicine addressed this question, uh, and they reviewed 114 guidelines for compliance with the Institute of Medicine standards. Now, this is looking at guidelines that were published before the Institute of Medicine standards came out, so it's to get a baseline. And what it showed is that there's definite room for improvement. We have a number of guidelines here on the uh, y-axis, and then the percentage of standards met on the x-axis. 
And as you can see, no guidelines met 100% of the standards. At best, there were a few guidelines that met about three quarters of the standards. And the median percentage of Institute of Medicine standards that the guideline adhered to was uh, 45%, so less than half. So this sort of corresponds to the pediatric study using the AGREE tool. Uh, what are the standards that the guidelines frequently met? Well, they did well with rating the quality of the evidence and discussing both the benefits and the harms of the recommendations and describing the role of expert opinion. But where they fell short um, were, was describing the differences in that expert opinion. And if you look at the bottom box, uh, only 5% of the guidelines did this. When doing their comprehensive systematic reviews, they rarely included non-English literature or unpublished data. And then particularly notable is the top box um, where they discuss conflict of interest. Only about 47% had conflicts of interest that were conflicts of interest that were stated. And out of the guidelines that did have those statements, 90% had a chair or a co-chair with a conflict of interest. So it's clear, uh, clearly the guidelines have to change in order to meet these Institute of Medicine standards. But there are some definite barriers to making that happen. Making a guideline is a resource-intensive process. Uh, and living up to these Institute of Medicine standards is going to make it even more resource-intensive, particularly time and money. So think about guidelines that have come out in the past year. So the Otitis Media Guidelines were published last year. And this was an update from a guideline published nine years prior. And then the Sinusitis Guidelines last year, they were an update from guidelines uh, first published 12 years prior. And even once an organization decides to make or update a guideline, uh, there's a wide range for how long that process takes. But on average, it can take over two years to produce and publish a guideline. And guidelines also cost money to produce. So I couldn't find any current estimates. But about 10 years ago, the average budget for a single guideline developed in the US was about $200,000. And this doesn't include any dissemination costs. And upon talking to guidelines, uh, people on guideline committees today, it seems like that $200,000 uh, estimate is a pretty gross underestimate, uh, and that the actual current number is much higher. But despite these barriers, many organizations are committed to try and improve their guidelines and follow the Institute of Medicine standards. Uh, the AAP actually has this statement on their website that the Academy is working to implement the principles outlined in the Institute of Medicine report, Clinical Practice Guidelines We Can Trust. <laughs> so since this, uh, the Institute of Medicine uh, standards were published in 2011, and on average it takes about two years to produce a guideline, that means that the upcoming guidelines that are published in the near future from the AAP should be starting to follow these, these standards. And from speaking informally to members on guideline committees, it seems like they're making a real effort to comply. So to conclude, uh, let's review our objectives and what we talked about today. So we discussed the history and some of the benefits of guidelines, but we also explored many of their challenges and their limitations. Then we discussed the Institute of Medicine standards to improve the overall quality of guidelines. So my hope is now that you've listened to this talk you're a more informed consumer and user of the guidelines. Now that you're more aware of these potential limitations, when a new guideline comes out that you think will be relevant to your clinical practice, uh, I hope you take it and read it carefully and completely. 
that you look at the quality of evidence, the transparency of the process, and the conflicts of interest. Think about the organization and the committee members producing that guideline. And um, that way, you can decide which recommendations you want to follow, and then you can have confidence in them. So I would like to thank uh, Dave Rader, my fiance, because he's been very patient with me during this. And then uh, Kim Gifford, Michelle Tyler, Sean Ralston, and Sherry Shinoda were also extremely helpful in this process. Here are my references. <laughs> and so I think we have plenty of time left. Um, <laughs> so, uh, A really hot topic, but the, the issue is, of course, that we're all doing different things everywhere. We know that's bad, um, but we don't know what the right thing to do is, and so that's paralyzing. And that's what happens with these guidelines is you become paralyzed because there is no evidence. And I'm wondering about the emerging use of registries. So you put a guideline in place, but then have national registries, because to answer some of those questions, you need enormous, enormous amounts of data. The problem is, of course, that the registries also require, I mean, to enter all the data in. So if you have Patients with pneumonia, you want their age and their uh, weight and their standard of living and their socioeconomic status and then what bug they had and if you had a bug that you did. Like the amount of information you want to put in becomes enormous. But I wonder if that would help inform our guidelines because you can't wait for the RCTs. Because they won't, I mean, how long did Restore take? Six years. And that's one question. And, and as you said, with the RCTs, you have to have, you have to eliminate a lot of patients so that you don't have too many variables. And I don't know if you found anything in your reading about the use of registries. Um, I didn't find anything specifically specifically related to that, but um, I do think that's a, a really good idea and a place where we could potentially get a lot of information. So I think it's a great thought. There, there's a, um, this is a, an answer to show leads, right? So there's a, a thing going on in pediatric cardiology in New England. Uh, which it sort of came out of Boston Children's. It's called SCAMPS, and it's called Structured Clinical Assessment and Management Plans. And the idea is that clinical practice guidelines don't work, that they're um, often inaccurate, and they become fixed in place. And so the, all, basically all the pediatric cardiologists in New England are part of an organization now that um, in, develops and implements SCAMPS. So, you get a bunch of people together, and they agree on a, re a reasonable approach. And then they agree to collect data, and to then look at the data and say, and, and you agree to document when you've deviated from the guideline and why. Right? So you put this in place, and everyone agrees to practice by it and to document it, and then you collect data. And you go back and look at it and say, yeah, you know what we said to do this, but nobody does this. Why? Or we said to do this, and it turns out this isn't useful, but we never learn anything from it. So, and then there's it, it sort of has a built-in iterative process that says, you know what, we said you should do this test in this setting, and it never, it's never useful, so we'll throw that out of the guideline. Now we can retest it. How is that funded? Um, it, for, for the pediatric cardiology, Approach to it, it's not. It's just being done through NECA, which is New England Congenital Cardiology Association, uh, which has basically no budget. And it's just <laughs> agreeing to do it. But Children's has done this across Children's. Um, yeah. 
and so not just cardiology, and they've sort of pushed out this whole scans thing. And it's it's a, an approach to addressing what you just said is that developing guidelines is incredibly expensive, and they're not really that good. And this is a, a really useful approach, just kind of how do you actually do something about it? So, um, and Ali Justin is not here, I don't think. Did, did you come across anything about the Intermountain Health Experience in Utah with guidelines? I did not. So, piggybacking on Norm and, and aware of SCAMPS, and SCAMPS uh, does need to get itself sustainable and is working towards creating an organization that would be a member funded organization called so that would perpetuate these. Um, you know, all of us who have good friends at Boston Children, they still struggle with this notion of scams because Intermountain has been doing this for at least a dozen years, the iterative process of implementing a implementing a clinical practice guideline hardwired into their EMR, which makes it a very living, breathing process, and requiring that at least quarterly a group oversee those outliers, understands why people go off protocol, so to speak, or go off, you know, they, they basically have an ongoing, not randomized, but ongoing clinical trials for many of their common clinical conditions at all times, and they generate lots of data without having to develop a national registry to develop the data, you know, because they've got a, a living experiment. And I, and I mean, Sam and I are very familiar with SCAMPS, and it's a wonderful tool, but it's not a new idea, but folks at Harvard are pretty good at taking something that's not theirs and making it seem like it's theirs. Um, I've got a couple of photos on the wall. So I can say that. Um, so, so this 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 technology exists, and I guess I wonder about if Janelle or anyone in the audience can sort of speculate as to why Brent James's idea from Toronto hasn't really ever taken hold in many other places. And I know Sean was going to raise her hand. <laughs> so. so, so uh... Uh, I mean, uh, there, there, there are multiple reasons, I think, why the, the idea, you know, inter, what Intermountain has, what Brent has, you know, is a freaking PhD in math. I mean, you know, and what, what they do so well, I mean, what they have done so well is have um, tremendous analytic resources um, d directed towards the data. Um, that, you find me that anywhere else, maybe Kaiser, you know, and, and what's come out of Kaiser has been fantastic too. Um, the, the thing that, you know, questions like Shalene's interested in because you're an ICU doc and because your patient, there's a small population of patients, you know, things like, things like registries are, are, are you know, invaluable. But, but for the sort of the vast majority of things, the issue isn't so much that, 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 that guidelines stink. I mean, you know, um, my guideline is damn good. <laughs> But, but it's because there's almost no expert opinion in it, uh, and, and, and it's a very limited guideline, you know, because uh, you know we because really the AAPs put tremendous resources in trying to improve their guideline process. The problem is that we haven't told anyone how to operationalize the guideline. That is the problem. People don't understand that. They don't understand. I mean, you know, I think that's what SCAMPS is all about, and they don't understand what 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 you mean when you say operationalize the guideline. What you know, you, here's a guideline. Just do it. But it's actually really complicated, and it's part of what they do with TDI really well, and part of what the people have done here in other places, like what um, what Greg Oprince is really good at. And you know, operationalizing a guideline is actually really hard. You know, so we took the IDSA guideline through a process of operationalizing the pneumonia guideline, uh, and the, the, through a process of operationalizing the quality metrics, and it took about six months and a full two-day meeting with bloody 
fighting and screaming and pulling hair out to get people to agree on what it meant you know, to, to, to um, use narrow spectrum antibiotics in typical community acquired pneumonia. I mean, a single, you know, a single thing. So I, I think it's very, very different to go from the random, and let's also not, like, uh, let, let's not write off randomized trials because there are, I can give you multiple examples where um, health services research, i.e. pediatric health information database or those things, you know, told us that in a retrospective analysis, this was the way to go when we finally did the randomized controlled trials. Um, we did not find that those that, that the retrospective data was true. So I think there, there's still a whole lot to be said for prospective randomized trials, particularly when you're talking about interventions you know, or drugs, right? Um, but nevertheless, if we can figure out how to operationalize a guideline, we are so much better off than, and you know, which I think probably is the, the piece of scamps that's kind of that's kind of awesome. And, and, and if it's not obvious, I have a whole lot of passion for guidelines. <laughs> but as Norm says, it's right now, it's it's the move of you and Naomi Gawker in pediatric cardiology and Juwan at Boston Children's, but it is going to need resources to get that operational status up. And Brent James somehow cajoled the whole world of resources actually building that data platform and intermountain to actually the I, I asked this to Frank James about 10 years ago now, and I wonder if in the past 10 years has been Was there any literature you came across in your reading about the concern of cookbook medicine and guidelines impacting medical education? And so, yeah, so I couldn't find anything specifically related to that um, guidelines in, in medical education. I think there's where there has been more studies are, you know, major resources like up to date places that really kind of try and do a full summary of, of uh, you know, a clinical topic. Um, and I think that they're actually very useful for the early learners in terms of just getting a baseline overview uh, of a topic. Um, but then not quite as good for diving in and really learning how to evaluate, uh, you know, the scientific literature really critically. A lot of the intermountain experience comes from the work of Alan Morris, who's an adult intensivist, who looked at treatment, of ventilatory treatment of ARDS, with protocols, computerized protocols. And they were open loop. The, the, the term cookbook applies to closed loop things where you don't have a choice. You must do this. They were open loop. And the people who deviated from the protocol needed to justify it at its given an explanation as to why. He, he used that for ARDS. He used it for uh, glycemic control, whether that's a, a valid thing uh, in, uh, conceptually or not, but, but the use of it. And he has data that show that the outcomes were actually better. I, I'm worried that the term cookbook is, is many times, although there is some element of truth and concern there, it's many times used by people who simply don't want to be bothered by the difficulty of using guidelines. I know better. My experience is better. Even though there are a zillion studies showing that the individual experience leads you down the road, unfortunately, the patient down the road to purgatory and, and, and bad outcomes. So uh, I would be careful to look at guidelines with open loop options 
in the guidelines versus closed loop, you must must do this. And the good chefs, how many of them rigidly follow the cookbook anyway? Right? <laughs> I don't think it's pejorative to put it Right. I just want to make a comment that uh, research funding was never good for clinical research. And then it got extremely limited uh, in the 80s and 90s. And so people turned to pharma to fund the clinical trials, mm -hmm. to do the work that was needed. And then they became the experts in the field. And they were the ones called on <coughs> to lead these things. And somehow, expert opinion has been denigrated now. It's that, geez, you, you know, you have these connections with farming. And I understand the conflict thing, but there's also this gap that we didn't support people to do objective uh, research, particularly in public health. And so I'm not so sure the conflict of interest stuff necessarily means it was bad, just because that's the way people were supported. And until we fund it, I don't know how we get out of that loop. Um, in questions where there aren't supportive data, I'd like an expert to <laughs> express their opinion. As long as you know that it's expert opinion as opposed to the expert saying it's based on Right. Yeah. Yeah, I thought we could debate that one for a long time because um, I fairly aggressively disagree. <laughs> I mean, I think that we have so much, so much evidence of uh, the nefarious influence of industry in, in, in our. I mean, even in I'm not going to say it, I'm going to get beaten out of here, but even in the cholesterol screening guidelines, um, you know, in pediatrics, I think. Um, and I think the AP has done a lot recently to try to address that, to try to address, um, because you, you, you know, sunshine does not wash away uh, the the influence of industry. And oh man, I just what I know, what I know would grow your hair. <laughs> 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 and I, but I cannot say any of from having a conversation about this. So I have a question for, for one, a comment. I think this is a fantastic topic and a great job. And a lot a lot of the comments just sort of focused on this one touchy place on where cookbook medicine interfaces with you know shared decision-making and patients' values and all those kind of things. And so as someone who's just finishing your residency, how, how could we teach that? Like, how, how do you teach someone how, how to manage that? How would you like to have been taught? Um, I feel like uh, my mentors here have just always tried to make me aware of um, where the patients are coming from in general. Um, you know, we always approach medicine kind of from one specific medical point of view, uh, but the patients are, you know, in a broader context. And I think I think this actually gets done pretty well in, in residency, um, you know, in clinic or on the inpatient ward. You know, we uh, always involve multidisciplinary teams to try and help um, really show uh, that we're taking care of the patient kind of completely from all different angles and not just approaching them from that one medical point of view. Thank you.